You're listening to Voice Acting Mastery, episode number 146. Welcome to the Voice Acting Mastery podcast with Crispin Freeman. VoiceActingMastery.com is your place to learn both the skills and the mindset you need to become a professional voice actor, even if you're just getting started. In each episode of this podcast, you'll discover valuable tips, tricks, and insider information to help you portray characters in animation, video games, and beyond. And now here's your host, voice actor Crispin Freeman. Hi there. My name is Crispin Freeman, and I'll be your guide through the world of voice acting. If you'd like to know more about me, feel free to check out my personal website at www.crispinfreeman.com. I've got a very special treat for you in this episode. I'm honored to bring you the first part of my interview with the stupendously talented D. Bradley Baker. As of the release of this episode, D. has over 500 credits to his name on the Internet Movie Database. He's worked on hundreds of animated movies and shows, including Cow and Chicken, The Angry Beavers, Dexter's Lab, Ben 10, The Box Trolls, The Fairly Odd Parents, Phineas and Ferb, American Dad, Avatar The Last Airbender, The Legend of Korra, Star Wars The Clone Wars, and the list goes on and on. Dee has great comedic instincts and has played numerous characters over the years, but he also has a special affinity for creature voices. He is often called in to voice characters that don't speak a human language, but communicate through nonverbal sounds. It's a highly specialized skill, and Dee excels at it. He can do small animal and bird sounds, large scary monsters, and every kind of swamp creature in between. All without the use of pitch shifting or electronic alteration. That's just him in front of a microphone being brilliant. I was really excited to get Dee on the podcast because I wanted to talk to him about his acting process. While the vocal pyrotechnics he can produce are impressive, Dee doesn't just get hired because he can make crazy sounds with his throat. His special skill is to convey emotions through creature noises. In other words, acting. He combines his amazing technical prowess with his road-tested acting abilities in order to make his creature sound so expressive and believable. In this first segment of our interview, I asked Dee how he got started as an actor. While he did get involved in theater at a very young age, his journey to becoming a professional voice actor was anything but typical. He didn't take many acting classes in school, and he never planned on having a career as a performer. Instead, he simply did what sounded fun to him in the moment and gave himself permission to try any interesting opportunity that came his way. This meant that his journey has been filled with serendipity and synchronicity. He never had a concrete plan for his career, but rather followed his fascination and did his best to capitalize on where his skills overlapped with his interests. His story is as inspiring as it is unconventional. 
but I'll let Dee tell you all about it in his own words. Let's get started. And now, the feature segment. Welcome everyone to the podcast. We have an incredibly special guest with us today. The amazing, the astounding, the mind-bending Dee Bradley Baker. Um, we've decided to meet him out in the forest um, <laughs> <laughs> with the crickets and the bullfrogs um, uh, because we thought, why not have a sort of au naturel episode where we just enjoy... It's more inspiring in nature. <laughs> exactly. We're getting in touch with our roots. <laughs> so, uh, Dee, it's, it's really, I mean, the, your body of work and everything you've done is so incredible. Um, not only do you have um, just um, amazing acting chops and the ability to play all these different characters, but your ability to do all of your creature voices is just astounding. Um, it's, oh, the, it's, it's kind of uh, uh, mind-blowing and gobsmacking when you, when you can create all, these, uh, all this madness uh, with your voice. Well, thanks. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a very unusual specialization, but ultimately I think, uh, you know, when you want to be a professional artist that you find your toehold in a career by going with what is uniquely yours and your own unique voice, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. Uh, the creatures and sounds and monsters and all that, it's really just a modification of acting. It's, it's, uh, I don't think of myself as a sound guy or a sound effects guy. Sure. Um, uh, that's, that's not really what I'm hired for. I'm really hired for acting that's channeled through the weird sounds. That's, yeah. that's what it, that's the key. And that's what a lot of people don't understand is, is they think is it, um, that you can learn the sounds, and then then you've got the sounds, and then you can be hired to make the sounds. It's like that's not what you're hired to do. Actually, you're actually hired to be uh, to be an actor and to be directed and to analyze and collaborate and do all the things that they need from an actor. Yeah, and that was one of the reasons why when I made this podcast, I wanted to call it voice acting mastery. Like the idea is that we're not here to just to make funny voices. We're not here to make mm-hmm. funny sounds. We're here to act. And acting is playing pretend, and playing pretend believably enough that people will pay us to do it. And yeah. so in order to do that, we have to embody characters. We have to understand the world we're playing in. We have to flesh out. We have to put nuance and all this stuff in. And whether yeah. you're doing with words or noises, you're still trying to convey a character and a story. Yeah, and a very specific one at that. I mean, the, the key to it is that I, I look at us as, as fundamentally problem solvers, and that we are hired to be able to sort of diagnose and triangulate a a good solution to what this character is and to how this character plays out in a scene. Yeah. That we're very actively deciding that and and adding to it and making that Mm -hmm. rather than just fulfilling a, uh, a, a request or an imperative. You're actually making something with them that solves what they want. Yes. That's... That's that's a really important aspect of what you're doing in addition to just the vocal performance or yes. the acting performance. Yeah, and I think that's one of the, the misconceptions or the traps that especially aspiring voice actors can fall into is they think, I've got to give them what they're asking for or I've got to execute what I've been directed to do 
as if they are somehow dictating homework that you have to do. And it's like, no, they're trying to figure out a problem. They're not quite sure how to fix it. You have to come in as like the master plumber and be like, no, 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 I know how to fix this or I know how to find a solution for this that's brilliant. Yeah, and often that that goes beyond giving them what they think they want. Yeah. Because uh, often it's your job as an actor to kind of... you want to come up with what they actually need. Yes. Which may, they may not understand that. Who's to say they know how to, <laughs> how to articulate what they want? Yeah, they may not be able to say it, and they may have never thought of it. Uh, and, and maybe you may, you may not have found it either, but you may realize that what they think it is is not it. Yeah. <laughs> and that it's your job to come up with that, uh, you know, in, in concert with them. Uh, but there's pushback involved with that. There's, your, your stance is not one that is passive, but one that is proactive and and helpful and engaged and energized so that you are putting out your own offers, your own ideas yes. actively into the mix, not passively recepting, uh, receiving um, commands or or requests or whatever that you're you're pushing back. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I always I like to think of. Um, I read once about the making of um, a Blade Runner, mm. and and you know like Edward James almost that. You realize that these actors with a director like this, this gigantic you know magnificent director Ridley Scott, and hiring these actors and and hearing about Edward James almost is coming up with these ideas and you know making the origami himself and creating this real pushback with his character. That was not necessarily asked for, or maybe even always welcome. Yeah. But that ultimately brings something powerful and original and even unexpected, yet appropriate, to the story that is being told. Mm-hmm. So that's what Ridley Scott wants. That's what a great director wants. That's what any director wants is a mm-hmm. performer, an artist who's going to bring much more than just what's on the page or just what's asked of them. Yeah, and I think too often, especially because of our schooling, we are, we are often, uh, we train our children and ourselves to be in this position of that passivity, right? That there's a teacher or there's an authority figure who asks you to do something and you do that and then you get a gold star. And that passive mentality does not serve you as an actor. Not because, for long. No, because, because invariably they don't want you to just um, fix that widget or be on some sort of assembly line. They want you to think proactively. They want you to use problem-solving skills. They want you to anticipate maybe where they're going. And, and this idea, oh, I think I know what you want. It's this, right? And they go, yeah, how did you know that? And you can only do that if you're sort of, you know, you, you roll up your sleeves and you're in the kitchen saying, no, 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 let me, let me help you make this. Like, I, I, I sort of get where you're going. What do you think about this? Yeah, very much so. Yeah, they don't. They don't want to take lead you by the hand through all of this. They've got no. a thousand things that they're dealing with, and juggling around. And the best, the best thing is to have an actor or or a technician or a creative partner of any kind who just takes the ball and runs with it. Yeah. Who makes you can trust yeah. to to make something that's awesome and just let them do it. Mm-hmm. You know, and and consult and collaborate along the line uh, along the way. But but. Um, yeah, the, the, the objective is not obedience. No, because no good director wants to sock puppet you. No. Right? They don't want to stick their hand up and make you do what they want. No. They want to just sort of gesture at what they want, and then you be brilliant. 
right? Yeah. <laughs> you go off and be yes. brilliant. Ideally. Exactly. That's what they wanted. Ideally. <laughs> so good. Well, I'm, I'm glad we, because I, I, I think it's important. One of the things that's, that's a priority for me in the podcast is to disabuse people of the sort of conventional notions or the, the misunderstandings of, of voiceover and voice acting. Because it's easy to get um, uh, distracted or impressed by the things that are uh, sort of show off your sparkly, such as the fact that you can do all these crazy sounds, right? And people get hypnotized by that, and they don't understand the craft of acting that's underneath that that actually makes it compelling and not just a party trick, right? That actually mm-hmm. means that you can carry a character, like uh, in Avatar The Last Airbender, where, where Appa's Day, what, what was it called, the episode? Appa's, Appa's Lost Days. Well, Appa's Lost Days, where it's just the story of Appa being lost. Mm-hmm. And so you have no dialogue in the episode. That's a heartbreakingly good episode. It's really good, because, mm-hmm. and, and here you are carrying the entire emotional journey of a character with no language. Yes, uh, and I will qualify that by saying that, that it is a team effort to make that and that I, I'm adding the sound and the vocal performance, but the, the writing, the storyboarding, the directing, the, the, the entire collaboration of the team that make that... They all get credit too. Yes, <laughs> not no, no, just no. me. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 a combining robot, right? Yes. Which is the case with any animated character. You know, people say, "What is it like to play this character?" It's like, well, I only play half of it. The other right. half of the character is played by the animators who yes. have to put this together, and the writers who create the words yes. for it or whatever. So yeah, it's always. I mean, it's an. Intensely... I try to keep that in mind because it's. I think it's. It's it's easy to do and it's fun to do, and there's not necessarily anything wrong with it to say, "I am this character." Look, I'm the character, and everyone says, "Ooh, I'm meeting the character." Yeah, I'm the thing is like, well, in a sense, yes. Yeah, in a sense, yes, you are the character. I am the character, but uh, as the character lives in your heart and in your mind, this is a it's it's a collaboration of hundreds of people, probably. Right. And when it when it's all told, that that create the timing and the feel and the story and the heart and the comedy and all the rest of it. That it's not all just the voice actor. It's not all just me. I'm yeah. happy to take some credit yeah. uh, and, and, and possibly even more credit than I deserve sometimes. <laughs> why not? But I, I, you know, that's why I like a, a convention where the, the animators, the writers, the illustrators, uh, the storyboard artists, uh, other people that are involved with this can get some love and attention and appreciation that they really deserve because they're more hidden than we are. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> voice and, and sometimes it's it, I, sometimes I think it's only it's easier to, to focus on the voice actor because it's one person, whereas the animators it's usually a team. Right. Right. And so yeah. it's 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 just harder to you know yeah. s- say thank you to a committee than yeah. it is to one person. So uh, I think that's probably where that comes. But from. But people, I mean, you know, as you know, at a, at a convention, I mean, they they're they're very very excited. They want to meet these characters. They want yeah. to be in the presence of of this character or that character and it's very very exciting you know and i don't want to diminish that it's, no it's and we can do the character in real time right the animators yeah. can't do the character in real time it takes them yes time to make that character move yeah but as where we can just fart around and yep. <laughs> do it in the moment just throw it out <laughs> so voice acting i want to make sure that my uh listeners understand how you got started as a voice actor, and of course, you didn't necessarily start out planning to be a voice actor. You no. just wanted to be. Uh, you just found performing in and of itself fascinating. So yeah. how, maybe the best way to uh, phrase that is: How did you get started as an actor? Well, um, 
I started acting in second grade. Uh, I auditioned for the musical Oliver at my school, which mm-hmm. was a K through twelve school in Greeley, Colorado. And I was a good singer, and my dad was a musician, and I was a good little boy soprano, and was good to perform and confident and bright enough, and it worked. And so they hired me to be hired me. I wasn't paid; it was just a school show. <laughs> they chose you back then. It wasn't they a, cast. It you. wasn't a gig back then. It was it was it was a show. <laughs> uh, yeah, and so that went very well, and and I had a lot of fun. And um, Oliver's actually not the most difficult role. It's 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 uh, Fagan and Nancy. That they're the ones who carry the show, right? <laughs> not Oliver. Yeah. Um, but um, so from there, I started uh, uh, doing performing both at my school, but also the university that my school was um, housed on uh, on on the campus of a university that was part of the teaching college there at UNC in Greeley, Colorado, mm. University of Northern Colorado, and so. The university theater program, which was quite strong, really innovative, and really, wow. they were great. They were doing everything from operas to musicals to drama. And they would start using me to be the boy soprano in Bernstein's Mass or to do their version of Oliver. I was one of the two Olivers. They they switched out there. And, and doing other music uh, performance-type productions there, in addition to... Occasionally doing stuff at my school. Now again, and this how was, old were you when this was happening? Well, I started in second grade, which is like it's like six, eight, seven, nine, eight, nine? eight, eight or nine, eight or nine. Okay, yeah. Um, but again, this was just stuff I was doing for fun. There's, right. I, this is Greeley, Colorado, and um, I mean, my dad was kind of a professional artist. He was a trombone player. Uh, is retired now. Uh, who transitioned from uh, playing in big bands to uh, teaching mm. at a university. Uh, I think to have a stable job. Sure. To be rooted for, to, to make a family and all that. Mm-hmm. Made that, those, that sacrifice, I guess. Um, so I was doing these things for fun and I never ever thought that, I thought acting was a hobby at best. It was, there was, there, there was no pot living possibility in my mind of acting or voice acting as a career. Mm-hmm. I always thought, I, it always felt to me like others were more talented that, that were like, this is someone like there's one guy, his name is Stu, and he went on to study acting and to do do plays in Denver, in the big city Denver. And it's like I thought, well, he's he starred in the in the Shakespeare play and that, that he's probably going to be an actor. But I'm, I'm not that kind of a guy. I'm not mm. I'm not I don't have that capacity, I didn't think. Right. In me. You saw him as more like a serious actor, and you yeah. thought for you it was just a lark. I, well, I, I thought he had the talent and the focus and the confidence, and I didn't have that. Gotcha. Um, in the meantime, um, I, I, uh, I was watching a lot of monster movies. I was reading sci-fi, some fantasy, fantasy books. Mm-hmm. Um, I was trying ventriloquism for a few years for nice. fun. Yeah. Uh, it was ter- I was terrible at it, I think. <laughs> I, my, my dummy's actually right down there still. Oh, it's really okay. creepy. Ooh. Danny O'Day. And, um, yeah, so I kept doing all of those things and then kicked through school. Uh, I was a good student and I liked uh, kind of the life of the mind and, and really wanted to get out of school and go to college where I was the happiest. I just loved college. Mm-hmm. Studied philosophy uh, with practically a minor in German, but also did a lot of performing, open mic kind of improv stand-up stuff that I do with friends. And where were we going to college? In Colorado College in Colorado Springs. Okay. 
uh, and as well as musicals and plays, both student-created. I wrote a musical with a friend whose birthday is today. Oh, wow. Happy, happy birthday, John Cook. And uh, we did a full... Full length musical we, that we, we that's a whole story that's too long, but it's a fun it's a really fun story. Okay. <laughs> it, there's lots of deceit involved in getting to that goal. <laughs> um, <laughs> Had to sneak things not, past faculty yeah. and whatnot. Well, uh, yeah, I, I lied and told them that I could windsurf at in um. order so I so that we could work together to write this musical. I told the people at this tennis club at this blue blood it's where they it's where they filmed GARP. Oh, okay. And we'll it's that little—it's that harbor right there where the Garp House is. That's where I taught windsurfing all summer. And the only job available on the island, so I could work with my friend to write the musical, was, was that windsurf. of a windsurf instructor. And I told them I was a windsurf instructor, just so you could get in the door. <laughs> yeah, yeah, nice. And I made myself into a windsurf instructor over the month. So. Well done. So anyway, so I graduated with, with philosophy degree. I, I really had no practical um, goals or intent whatsoever. I was lucky to have a, uh, a, a college scholarship that paid for my college. Mm-hmm. So that, that wasn't pressing mm-hmm. once I graduated. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, I didn't want to be a philosophy professor. I didn't want to be a philosopher. I'd met a philosopher, and it's like, he's a cool guy. I don't, want to, I don't think I'm brilliant enough, and I don't really want to write, just write books. And um, Well, that's the irony of a liberal arts education. People don't understand what it was created for. It was created at the fall of the Roman Empire to create a Roman administrator, like a mid-level manager, a mayor of a Roman town. Mm. It's not supposed to be a practical degree like being uh, an engineer or something. Yeah. It's supposed to give you this broad uh, knowledge of information so that then you you understand the humanities so that you can be a manager of a Roman town. And so when people go, well, what practical thing are you going to do with a liberal arts degree? Nothing. There is nothing. Like the only practical thing at a liberal arts school is like computer science or economics. Like the, like, yeah. it, like or I well, guess STEM chemistry. It could be biology. Or it something. could be nothing or anything. Yeah. I mean, another way to look at it is you get you emerge with this sort of um, sort of a Swiss Army knife of a mind. Yeah. That you're able to adapt and to think and to analyze and to follow what you like and your curiosity and. And really in a world that's increasingly disruptive uh, and disrupted, uh, that's probably the most self-serving type of education to have. Adaptability. Rather than specialization. Yeah. Uh, But these are things I wasn't thinking of, but that's how it played out. I mean, Mm -hmm. thank God I didn't study acting. Interesting. So you never took any acting classes in college? I took one. Okay. I took a acting class. But the rest of the time, I just performed a lot. I wrote and made stuff and performed a lot. I made audio tapes with my friends, a lot like multi-track audio performance tapes. I actually did the same thing. I heard you talking about how you would put almost dead batteries in your tape recorder. Yeah. So that it it would slow the tape down so that when you played it back at normal speed, it would be higher pitch. Yeah. I actually did the same thing when I was young. I I figured that out with a tape recorder. I was like, oh, my God, that's so cool. And it would also, the, the preamp on the mic would sort of, Depower, and so everything would start sounding distorted, like it was coming over some sort of mm-hmm. airplane radio or something. It was great fun to play with that. Yeah, I mean, the um, the the world of of of, uh, of analog is certainly a more confined world in many ways. But that's one thing that I've come to see recently is that confinement is really the friend of art. It's really the friend of creativity because you have something to push against, and mm-hmm. it's and it's simple. 
and you can you can move against that. Mm-hmm. For instance, um, you know, with my with my macro bug photography, uh, I just use this little Olo clip, which is a it's a diopter, a little a little magnifying lens that that fits on my my iPhone. Mm. And it's actually very limited in what it can do. It's right. it, it's a, only a certain kind of picture with with a certain distance, and really with the light is cert, it's just like very very persnickety and finicky. Mm-hmm. But it's that limitation that actually makes it fun, and yeah. that makes it so that I can I can actually zero in on exactly how that is most optimal and come out with some really awesome pictures because of it. Yeah. As an amateur, as someone who really doesn't know what he's doing yeah. in terms, I don't know, an f-stop from a, uh, a, I don't know, a lens. I just don't know. Yeah. But I'm, I'm purely going from these limitations and making something that I like. Yeah. And that's kind of what it was like with these, these old analog uh, tape recorders. Yeah, these, that you can mess with. Yeah. So you said that you, thank God you didn't take an acting class in college. Why do you say that? Because um, my the, the 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 weird specificity of my life and my career is is fed from first of all from an improvisational stance towards the world, and second of all, I'm able to channel all of these weird avenues of things that I like and have studied into what I do now. Mm-hmm. It makes me as an as an acting commodity more authentic and unique mm-hmm. because I, I never came at the world as an actor. Mm. I came at it more as an improvisational entrepreneur creative person. Mm. And, 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 but it's not because I studied it. It's just because that's what, that's just the way I surfed it. Mm-hmm. It's like, um, but, and, and so uh, to, to get more specific though, because I don't want to turn somebody away from from studying or or getting better at what they do in whatever way they want, mm-hmm. just so long as it produces the results that you want, right? And that it doesn't give you a more a more confined view that 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 what you learn is liberating, and not one that that actually imposes boundaries on your expectations uh, of what this actually is. Yeah, you don't want it to be restrictive because if you're taught by some guru that this is how acting is supposed to be, you can narrow and eliminate the possibilities of what you could do. Sure. I mean, there's a lot of kind of ivory tower conservatory acting teachers who would look down at, uh, you know, not just at Los Angeles, mm-hmm. but also, you know, at what voice acting is or, or the weird stuff that I do. And, and they would turn a kid away and they would say, really, the real, you really want to be doing Chekhov. Mm-hmm. That's that's acting, or you really only want to be doing Shakespeare. That's that's really what you shoot for. Mm-hmm. You want to shoot for the art and not for the crass commerce. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's like I appreciate that, and and I and I treasure and value that. But for me, I want to make a life that's fun, that works, that also is artistic and creative, but that's a viable, uh, self perpetuating. Um, process, right? And in this country, <laughs> um, <laughs> what a crazy you, idea! You've got to have, I just think, weird avenues of influence and interest to power an authentic and unique path for yourself. Yeah, because that I think, as a, as if you want to be a commercial artist, which is what I am, and which is what most people are really talking about when they say, "I want to be a voice actor." It's like you want to be a commercial artist. You want to be a professional artist who's paid to create things. Mm-hmm. 
that you've got to have a tap on yourself. So why not, why not discover the world? Why not discover the worlds that are inside of you, that are, your, that are interesting, that are against expectation, and follow that? Uh-huh. And, 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 and in doing so, you emerge from whatever, whatever pathway you cobble yourself together, but you emerge as a unique and authentic voice, uh-huh. as, a, as an authentic creative person. That's marketable. That's right. something that a creative person wants to hire, not a generic, uh, fresh out of, of school, I can tap dance, I can belt Broadway, I can, I can do check off. What else can you do? What else is happening in your life? What, what, what else of the world do you have that, that is within you and that has to come out? Yeah. And so that's, that's what I mean to say. I don't mean to disparage the study, a formal study uh, of art. But I would say that, uh, well, first of all, I never did it, <laughs> and things have turned out great. Uh, not to say that I don't have a lot to learn, and, and I do, and I realize that. I've got a lot to learn still. But my wife, she got conservatory training, and, her, and it kneecapped her confidence and her, mm. and her enjoyment of the thing that she loved, which was acting. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, are, there are teachers and programs that, that their, their MO is just to cut you down. And when you're young and you're an artist and you're just getting into this, you don't have the kind of armor built up to survive that kind of assault and they just chop you down and they don't put you back together. Mm-hmm. And because you're young and you're sensitive and you're not armored up and experienced and confident, it can kill you. It can kill your love of what it is you want to do. Yeah. That is evil. That is wrong. Yeah. It's so sad and so unfortunate. And so... I, I, if, if anyone, no matter what program or, or how you want to find your path, uh, look to those who do it, get referrals, audit, mm-hmm. you know, inspect it first before you plunk down your do re mi and jump into uh, a guru or a class or an acting program or anything. Mm-hmm. Don't just leap into the fantasy that is on the press release. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So you were here. You are having graduated college. You're fortunately because of your scholarships, you're not having to deal with student loans. Yes. But you're also um, were you were you at that point thinking I want to pursue a career in acting? God no. Okay. No. no so no. What, what was what, what what was your next step after college? I went home and mowed lawns. Okay. For a couple of months, I had absolutely no idea what I was going to do. And I don't know why, but I wasn't panicking about that. I I don't know why I wasn't panicking. But I really had literally no idea. I had no vision. I had no goals. I I didn't have anything. Mm. But I wasn't wasn't bothered by that. (laughs) And so the way it played out was it just, it's like someone said, hey, do you want to try doing this singing telegram? This gal, I know she does these for this company. Here's what you do. You strip down to a Python brief with, with these nerd glasses and you sing a song at the, at the Black Angus restaurants where they want it. Uh-huh. Would you do that for $25? Yes, I would. <laughs> I will do that for $25. Because why not? Why not? What's the worst that can happen from doing something stupid like that? Yeah. So I tried that. Yeah. That was fun. And then there was an ad in the paper for... for be a mall Santa. Mall Santa pays a lot, like 20 bucks an hour, 15 an hour, whatever it was back then, mm-hmm. which is well more than just working in an office or mowing lawns. Yeah. I've got a, I can do 
deep voice like that. I, I mean, and I'm, I'm, I'm good with live performing. I, I have no, really no inhibitions about performing or trying something like that. Why not? Yeah. So I tried Mall Santa. Yeah. I did that for, um, for, um, uh, that was the first Christmas after I got out of college. Nice. Then, um, uh, my friend who I wrote the mu- musical with, John Cook, he's now a sound engineer okay. um, out here for movies and sitcoms and such, uh, television stuff mostly, I believe. And he just called me up out of the blue. He was living in this freezing garage apartment in Colorado Springs. And he said, hey, you want a you room with me in Colorado Springs? And I'm like, all right, why not? That's I, you're, you're a cool guy. We, we make fun stuff together. Are you, you're supposed to go out in the world, aren't you, and see what the world's like or do stuff in the world. So, okay. I called my other friend who um, I was the bass singer for the the big choir performances at my college. Sang in a lot of choirs and barbershop and, and vocal jazz as well as madrigals and uh, chamber choir and the big choir. Mm-hmm. Sang in all of those. And, um, and I was the bass singer and the guy who was the uh, the the tenor, I was going to say the soprano, the the tenor singer, <laughs> he started a, an ice cream company with his friend, Josh mm. and John's Ice Cream mm-hmm. in Colorado Springs. And I called him up and said, hey, I, I hear you have an ice cream shop. Can I work at your ice cream shop? He said, sure, come on, I, I, you, can, you can work at my ice cream shop. So I moved to Colorado Springs and, you know, was like an assistant manager at, at the ice cream shop, where, by the way, it's awesome because not only does one of your arms become nice and strong, you know, but you have this captive audience all day long. Right. Of people who are just, they're just happy to come in and, and get a little ice cream and leave. Uh-huh. And you make this awesome ice cream creation. And I can play music that I want. And I can sing and do stupid voices and just fart around. It's actually a great gig. <laughs> it's like I'm performing all day. Yeah. And then, uh, then they had auditions. I saw they had auditions for Children's Theater, which was a seasonal uh, children's theater they had at the Fine Arts Center there. I auditioned for that, got into that, uh-huh. started doing that twice a year. Okay. My job with on ice cream was, was flexible. One of my other buddies, Aaron Schur, who's a writer here, we started doing stand-up. Um, he, he was already doing stand-up and they were like, let's try something, let's do something as a duo. We'll do something, you know, some stupid shit on stage. And, and that was fun. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, 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 and I learned a lot from doing stand-up. Um, well, one of which is I don't want to do stand-up. <laughs> right. It's just a terrible life. And it's just, it's, it's pretty miserable from many aspects. But it's a great um, gauntlet to throw yourself into to work your way into to find what works about you as an actor, as a live performer. Yeah. So I was doing that. And you're doing all of this in Colorado, right? In Colorado Springs. Yeah, in Colorado Springs. Uh, and, and sometimes I go up to Denver and we do stand-up in, in Denver or Pueblo or, you know. One time we, we did, we performed at a strip club in Boulder, but it wasn't strip club, club night. It was like comedy night. So, mm. so I did a reverse strip. I started with just my Python briefs and then slowly put on the clothes, you know, while they were playing the music. Well, you may think it was funny, but no one else did. I can guarantee you that. And again, who cares? Yeah. Why not? Why not? Why not you test do something it. stupid that's fun? See if it works. When you're young and you're free and it's like, just do something. Just don't stop doing fun, stupid shit. Yeah. See where it goes. See where it leads your life. So, um, 
So uh, I was doing those things. I started doing uh, singing telegrams, which is miserable. Mm-hmm. But you learn from that. Yeah. You know, it, 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 it's fine to try things that you don't like, but just so long as you learn from it uh-huh. and then stop doing it when you're done learning. <laughs> yes. <laughs> if you don't like it. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, I was doing that. Um, uh, and, and, and various things, I, I ended up uh, finally auditioning for uh, a health-oriented musical puppet show put on by Kaiser Permanente in Denver, mm-hmm. moved up to Denver, did that for a year, mm-hmm. auditioned, and kept doing all these other things, writing things, doing doing these kind of audio sketch improv shows with my little four-track mm. and my friends, okay. which we do for radio and we did on stage and at open mic nights, but these are just things for fun and, and, and often not for money. Yeah. Uh, then got hired to work at Disney World, uh, got lessons, did how, ooh, musicals. How did, you get the, how did you get hired at Disney World? They had a national audition tour and they needed uh, improv sketch people to, to do a couple of different shows, or a few different shows at Epcot Center and uh, the, the studio. Mm-hmm. And they, it, it, my skill set matched what they wanted. Were they holding auditions in, in Colorado? Denver. In Denver. Yeah, okay. well, all over. They, they, they yeah. hit like Chicago, Atlanta, Denver, mm. probably L.A. as well. Yeah. And, f- you know, some actors or performers would say, I'm, I am not doing theme parks. Or right. I, I do not want to be doing anything like that. I want to be on a stage or I want to be on TV. Right. And for me, it's like, that looks like fun. I'm going to try it. Yeah, why not? All I've done is follow the fun. That's yeah. all I've ever done. And, um, uh, and so, yeah, so there's lots to do in Orlando. Lots of people who want shows. There's theater. There's great improv with SAC Theater there that I learned a lot from. Doing improv, uh-huh. very valuable training. Uh-huh. Uh, doing uh, their varsity shows there. Um, did uh, I did musicals at the Civic Theater where they just got they got in Orlando. Yeah, okay. they got world class talent in there, and they they have great musicians and great performers, and they put on awesome shows. I did, nice. Did uh, Big River. I was Tom Sawyer. Oh wow! And I was Tony in West Side Story. If you can believe it. Wow. I think I was miscast, but it was, I learned a lot. And I also uh, opened up the Walk Around Beetlejuice at Universal Studios because I, I really connected with that character when the auditions came out. I remember yeah. auditioning. I was like, there's guys that come totally dressed as Beetlejuice. Yeah. And just thinking, I'm going to kick your ass because you are, do not bring this character. And I know what this character is. Yeah. And it's like, I totally connected. It's yeah. not about the costume, dude. No. And it wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I got that, and then I got into... Um, uh, and this, the, is, this is Universal Studios in Orlando as well? Uh, this is Universal Studios in Orlando when they opened gotcha. in 1990. Okay. Uh, got married. My wife, uh, my girlfriend, then and we married then at, uh, in 1990. Mm-hmm. And then um, I got into Legends of the Hidden Temple, which was a, a game show that Nickelodeon was doing because Nickelodeon was making, and, and, and Disney, they were making television shows, mm-hmm. television content there at the time. In Orlando. In Orlando. Got it. That was the big idea. It was going to be kind of like Hollywood Southeast. East. Yeah, something. Uh, didn't really pan out. Yeah. But anyway, so I got in that. The host of the show said, uh, come check out L.A. I said, I don't want to go to L.A. It sounds like a horrible place. I saw a PBS documentary that made it look awful in high school. And it's like, that looks like a hellhole. That doesn't look like fun. He said, you've got, no, come check it out. So I did, and I liked it. And so uh, my wife and I just said, well, things are as good as they're going to get here, which was really good. Uh But 
but why not go for blue sky? We're young, we're unencumbered. Yeah. Um, I've got experience and, you know, confidence and ability. Uh-huh. Why not just give it a shot? Yeah. Because you really don't know. I mean, you just, you just don't know how the world will respond to you until you step out into it and see. Yeah. You know, maybe you don't like it. Maybe it doesn't like you. Or maybe it's just going to go a different direction than you think. Uh-huh. Now, at, by that time, uh, I was like 28, 29. And I'm just looking around and saying, I think I'm a performer. I think this is what I'm doing. My, my, <laughs> my, my, my mom was still holding out hope that I'd be a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> Which I would have been good at, but I would have been miserable. Sure. Um, uh, and so it's like, this is kind of the way it's rolling, I guess. This is what I'm doing. Yeah. So I uh, moved out to L.A. It took a couple, it took a little over a year to get enough traction that Michelle didn't have to work temp jobs mm. to sustain us. Mm-hmm. And I thought I wanted to do animation voiceovers, but I was, I was doing commercials, getting good on-camera commercials, and starting to get television work as well. Did a mm-hmm. television series for Nickelodeon. Uh, but soon it became clear I had to make the choice because with on camera, they have you for the week mm-hmm. and they don't, they're, they're not going to be waiting around for you to go do your little cow and chicken episode or your own, this little, it's like, no, we want you in this trailer all week mm-hmm. and we need to know exactly where you are. And what's more, you need to be ready to come do your little thing exactly when we tell you to. <laughs> right. Whereas voiceovers is a completely different uh, it's a totally different lifestyle. Yeah. And for me, it's like, I like that lifestyle better. Yeah. The other stuff I could have done and I could have done well and it could have gone very well, but I just like voice acting because it's, it's a great variety of work and I have a skill set of, of improvisational acting that really suited the career mm-hmm. because this, this kind of acting in particular is very improvisational. Voice it's, acting. Yeah. 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 I think all acting ultimately should be at mm-hmm. a level. But um, it's um, it you're it it's it's important that you're able to have all these different curveballs thrown at you one after the other, and you just take them and you knock it, you give it a, give it a good swing each time, mm-hmm. um, and you can't be thrown or flustered or freaked out, and you can't. For, for me, it's like I, I I like I say I like to I like to arrive not prepared but ready. Yeah, I, I don't really want to be too prepared because it's usually something very different from what I thought it was, and then I have to dig myself out from my my choices that I've already made. So why even do that? Let's just just yeah. tell me what you want, show me what you want, and let's do it. Let's make it. Why well, have to throw off preconceived notions when you can just come in fresh and hit whatever yeah. is coming? I'm ready. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm hired to be is ready, ready to solve it. So when you came to L.A., people just didn't offer you these TV shows once you walked off the plane, right? Oh, God, no. So no, how- no, no, no. You start at zero. That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a misconception. If you've got some great resume and letters of recommendation and great schools that you studied with, that and $5 will get you a latte. Mm-hmm. Nobody cares. Right. Because you have to... The, the truth of the matter is, is that you have to earn the confidence of the gatekeepers, mm-hmm. of the people that cast and the people that create. There's a lot of talent. Talent and experience are everywhere, and that does not make you special. Mm-hmm. That's baseline. So what you've got to do is to make the connections and, and, and show people that you're a trustworthy, uh, really great person to work with. Mm-hmm. And that takes time to convince people of that. Mm-hmm. It can take years. So what did you do? You, you ste- did you, you either drove out here or you flew out here. Mm-hmm. You stepped off the plane or out of your car and... Well, I already had an agent. 
Okay. Uh, I had a voiceover agent. I just didn't understand that voiceovers and on-camera commercials were separate. <laughs> I didn't know anything. Ah. Uh, so it turns out that, that they had a great on-camera commercial agency, uh-huh. but their voiceover agency, Not so I got one audition in the year I was with them. And how did you get that agent? <laughs> did you get them while you were in Orlando? My, uh, my friend, uh, uh, Kirk Fogg, the host of, of Legends of the Hidden Temple, mm-hmm. he had me um, uh, interview at his agency. And then I somehow, I don't know if it was through cold calling or a cold send out, but I got this other agent to interview me as well. And you were sending out resumes, headshots, Oh, I was, but, but nobody cares about that. They just okay. didn't care. But this agent did. I think it was because I had a good enough resume, good enough experience. My voiceover demo was not competitive. Mm. But they were just starting their voiceover department. Mm. So they were kind of desperate, and they needed talent, mm-hmm. and they just needed good people. Mm-hmm. So they, they didn't have the typical filters that an established voiceover agent would have. Sure. Who, who would have said no to me, by the way. Yeah. Even as good as I was... As, as as talented and experienced and with a good resume, it, they don't care because they don't know me. They need to have somebody say, this guy is yeah. really good. I like working with this guy. Yeah. I've seen what he can do. He, he's he's uh, got a, a good business sense. He, he needs to be part of this. Yeah. That's what you need is a, is a well-placed recommendation. Yeah. So they signed me and things went well with on camera. But I took, uh, yeah, I took... I take these uh, kind of classes, like I, I took a Don Messick class, mm. where he would talk about his career and give uh, some advice. You know, some advice is good. Some advice is, was no good. It's like, it's like, oh, you want to be a voice actor? Well, go to go to acting school first. I'm like, I don't want to go to acting school. That's terrible advice. I don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so don't listen to my advice. Yeah. Don't uh, just you know, you just kind of got to take what works and leave what doesn't. I I heard a a talk by Jamie Thomason, Mm -hmm. uh, casting director for Disney and a lot of other things, Mm -hmm. and he gave a really great overview uh, and insider take that I found useful. I was reading books. Uh, I I took a Sue Blues class Mm -hmm. um, where I I think that's where I met Jennifer Hale, Mm. and and she liked me a lot. She thought I was talented and and good, Mm -hmm. and she put in a call. I also took a class with Chris Zimmerman and Charlie Adler, hmm. uh, which actually I almost walked out of because <laughs> <laughs> I showed up like five minutes late and Charlie Adler let me have it with both barrels, uh, which he didn't mean and he doesn't mean. But man, I, I almost walked out. It's like, I, yeah. I'm paying you my money and I'm not going to be talked to. But he doesn't mean that stuff. That's just Charlie. Everybody loves Charlie. We, I, I absolutely adore the guy. And so fortunately, that's like the dumbest thing I almost did was that. <laughs> Fortunately, almost, I did not. Almost walk out of the class. Yeah. Yeah. So when my, my, uh, when my uh, contract, my one-year contract was up with my first agency, they said, we want to re-sign you, but it's got to be across the board. And I said, I, I, I just want to do, I'll stay with you for on-camera because that's going great. I'm, I'm earning a living mm-hmm. on-camera. Mm-hmm. But voiceovers, it's not. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, you got one week to decide, kid. We took you in. We did all this kind of angle. It's like, oh. you know, when you're starting out, that's scary as hell sure. to have them give you that kind of BS. Yeah. But you got to look at it as a business thing. So I, I, I called up Chris Zimmerman and mm-hmm. Jennifer Hale, mm-hmm. and they said, 
we'll get, we're going to get you an interview at SBV, Sutton Barth Minari, mm-hmm. uh, which was Jennifer's agency. Which is great because uh, for my, the audience who doesn't know, you may probably know Jennifer Hill from her voiceover work, but Chris Zimmerman is a director. Right. So you're not just getting a recommendation from a fellow actor, but you're getting a recommendation from, some, from a director who hires you, right. who's basically calling up an agent and saying, as someone who makes the decision about who to hire, this actor, Dee Bradley Baker, is marketable. And, yeah. and, and you should take him under serious consideration. Right. Those were, those were the well-placed recommendations that they weren't doing it as a favor. Mm-hmm. You don't want someone to give you a recommendation as a favor. Mm-hmm. You want someone who's putting their reputation on the line because they know you and they understand and, and, and value what you do. Yeah. That's what you want. Yeah. That's why if, some, if you ask someone, a good friend who's well-established... Can you walk my stuff in? Can I see your agent? And they say, oh, I don't know. And they don't exactly show enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. It's easy to be offended by that. But listen, they're doing you a favor because you do not want to be, you you don't want to be be taken into that without being ready and without them feeling good about it and without this serving everybody involved. Yeah. Otherwise, you're doing everyone a disservice, including yourself. Mm Mm-hmm to go into something that you're really not quite ready for. Yeah. You've got to be patient with that. So uh, happily that played out beautifully is that despite my non-competitive demo, that Sutton Barth Minari liked me a lot, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I've been working steadily uh, through them and with them ever since. Right. For over 20 years. And during all, by the time you got to Sutton Barth Minari, were you known for doing the creature voices? Oh, no, no, no. No, no. I was, I was like young comedy guy. Kind of like a Tom Hanks, a young Tom Hanks type. Sure. But, but uh, versatile, improv, uh, kind of young Jim Carrey almost. Sure. Uh, uh, just, just craziness. Uh, I'll do crazy voices and, and wacky sounds, but it's like I'm not the sound guy. Mm-hmm. So the way it played out from there is I, I started getting roles. Uh, Cow and Chicken was my first series. Mm-hmm. And then doing kind of uh, wacky, small, one-off cartoons for, for Hanna-Barbera. Um, and, uh, and I remember being in a session and watching Frank Welker, Frank Welker, uh, if, if you, if the listeners don't know is, uh, is this brilliant, um, juggernaut of, of a talented guy who's probably been in more movies and television shows than anybody ever on the planet in the world ever. If you don't know Frank Welker, actually you do know Frank Welker. You just don't know that you know Frank Welker (laughs) because you've heard him in something. Yeah. But he's like the, the creatures, monsters, weird sounds guy, sure. uh, as well as all sorts of other things. And I just remember watching him and, and thinking, thinking to myself, I like doing that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Maybe I should work on doing that kind of stuff because come to think of it, they need pets and animals and aliens and creatures. And there's always a monster to fight for the superheroes I like doing this weird stuff. Why don't I get me some some animal audio CDs and apply my driving around town improv mindset to kind of drinking this in and sort of amplifying this angle mm-hmm. that really resonates for me. Yeah. Not because not not that I'm saying uh, this as as a way to make money. I, it's it's because it's weird. It's like I I saw that this is something I really resonate with that I really like. Yeah. I like animals. 
I, I love science. I love monster movies. And the stuff I like to do on a stage is often very weird and odd. Mm-hmm. And I'm not inhibited to do this kind of stuff. So I like it. Yeah. A lot of actors, they want to look good. They want to look pretty. They want to look competent. Right. Me, I want to look grotesque. Yeah. I want to look weird. I want to look like, what the f*** is this guy doing? <laughs> That's what I want to do. Yeah. Because those were the comedians that I liked. I liked, you know, Jim Carrey, Steve Martin, um, Andy, um, uh, oh, who's the guy? Kaufman? Andy Kaufman. Yeah. Yeah. But, but the guys who were trying the weird stuff, mm-hmm. that, but that was interesting. That mm-hmm. was, it was artistic and kind of performance art. Edgy. Uh, um, Monty Python, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Firesign Theater. Mm-hmm. I mean, that stuff I thought was cool. Mm-hmm. Ken Nordine. You don't know who Ken Nordine is? Look up Ken Nordine and start listening to some word jazz. That'll, that'll, that'll rock your world. <laughs> but that was the stuff that I thought was cool and that really resonated with me uh, personally and creatively that, that brought enthusiasm to, yeah. my, to, my, to the surface for me. So, and so I, started, I just started locking in sounds that I could use expressively uh, that in a way that they could be used in a show or a, in storytelling. Mm-hmm. And as I, as I gradually built up that, that database of sounds and, and physicalizations and, and use of my instrument vocally, uh, the work slowly started to open up mm-hmm. until more and more and more. Until that's, now that's probably more than half of what I do is just non-human utterances. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not because you were triangulating. No. You didn't say, oh, well, clearly there's a market for this, and if mm-hmm. I do this business plan, then... And no, you just, this is just something that fascinated you, and you realized that people liked it. They're like, I like doing this. Oh, and people like it too? Great. Yeah. There, there's, there's, some, there's some calculation, but I really think the reason that it works is because of what it means to me and how it comes from my life. How it... it, it springs from my deepest enthusiasms since a kid mm. for monsters and creatures and animals and performing and comedy and improv and all of these things. Mm-hmm. It, it's not something that can be arrived at through an external calculation. Right. That it's, it's more, I see of it as more as an, an internal path towards this. And I think ultimately anyone who wants to be a performer or an, even an artist of any kind, they, 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 the best path is to try to lock into this that is that is your inner wellsprings of whatever that is you mm-hmm. and and for me the way i unlocked that was with a liberal arts education mm-hmm. and with studying things that were not practical but that were that followed my enthusiasm and my curiosity mm-hmm. and and that's that that's why i say i'm glad i didn't study acting yeah i just acted a lot i did a lot of performing yeah but i i kind of learned by doing and and my exploration of uh in education and philosophy and german and biology that i studied all of that i weave into my life and my career and my work on a daily basis mm-hmm. i still really very actively feed my curiosity with my kindle and audiobooks.audible.com I'm I'm totally I'm I'm constantly feeding fuel into my fire uh, of of what I know of the world of 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 how words are used of how ideas are used of how the world is evolving 
of of what's happening. So I'm I'm I, I look at it as as a professional necessity to constantly be be feeding that mm-hmm. so that I can bring that back out into the world that I can paint from this inner palette mm-hmm. that is mine that is is that I'm constantly adding to and making available so that I can apply it uh, in my life and also in my work mm-hmm. but it's a weird it's a weird path to get to that that's my own mm-hmm. you know I, I don't have a generic way for other people to follow to do it yeah I, I've got some guideposts you know that I could r- recommend but but mostly, I, I think you have to find your own your own weirdness, your own path to surf. You know, absolutely. I mean, there is no generic path. <laughs> that's the, that's the misunderstanding is that, that people think there is a recipe, and there is. Yeah, isn't. as you know, I mean, if if you ask any of us voice actors, how did you get here? You'll get as many answers as voice actors that you interview. Yeah, it's all totally different. Totally different. There's some overlap, to be yeah. sure. I mean, many of us. Maybe most of us come from some kind of live performing, probably, yeah. but not necessarily, mm-hmm. and certainly not necessarily from a path of, of, of uh, conservatory-trained acting, mm-hmm. although there are those among us, Kevin Michael Richardson, Jeff Bennett. Me. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, uh, there are those who have taken that path and found it here. There's, there's weirdos like me, uh, some from stand-up, you know, like Tom Kenny. Mm-hmm. There's artists. There's m- people from music. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people that are animators. There's, there's all these different paths that can lead to this. Yeah, but they're unique to the person. To the person. Yeah. I'm fascinated by Dee's journey. So often we are told by well-meaning career advisors and gurus that we must have a clearly articulated plan or goal that we must constantly be striving for. Many of these experts warn that unless you have a specific career target in mind, you'll become aimless, lose your focus, and never achieve success. Dee's journey bucks that conventional wisdom. When he graduated college, he had no idea what he wanted to accomplish. But that didn't make him panic. Instead, he simply started trying his hand at things to see what he enjoyed and what he was good at, and whether those two things could overlap in a lucrative way. He left himself open to the possibilities, which meant that he never went into a situation judging it beforehand. This playful openness meant that he could truly explore what fascinated him. And as you may have learned from previous interviews I've done with other voice actors, fascination is a vital component to pursuing any artistic career. If you're not fascinated by the craft of voice acting, then the chances of becoming professionally competitive dwindle precipitously. Even though he didn't know specifically what he wanted to do at first, this seeming lack of a plan didn't mean that Dee was just aimless and waiting for things to fall in his lap. Far from it. He was actively pursuing interesting opportunities with an open mind and an honest heart. If something appealed to him, he would continue investing time and energy into it. If he found it boring or distasteful, he did his best to internalize whatever lesson he could learn from that experience and then move on. I think his approach can best be summed up by his motto. He likes to arrive not prepared, but ready. He wants to enter every situation with an improvisational mindset, which leaves him open to creative possibilities that he never could have premeditated. Dee's concept of not preparing doesn't mean you shouldn't develop your craft or improve your skills. It just means you don't walk into a situation having prejudged it one should always hone their abilities to the point where they can be a confident performer. 
Dee spent years getting up on stage learning how to communicate effectively to an audience. He spent hours and hours studying animal noises in order to develop and refine his own creature noises. That took a lot of dedication, fascination, and focus. However, when he walks into the booth and it's time to perform, he wants to be as flexible an actor as possible. He doesn't want to get attached to a single interpretation of the character or the story in front of him. He wants to be open to collaborating with his fellow creators and to enjoy the synergy that comes from everyone creating a project together. In the next part of our interview, I ask what inspired Dee to pursue acting in the first place. We discuss his fascination with sci-fi and fantasy storytelling and how he uses his love for paleontology and dinosaurs to inform his creature noises. It's an exciting segment, so I hope you'll tune in. If you'd like to learn more about Dee and his artistry, please visit his website at www.dbaker.com, where you can hear his demos, find out about his upcoming projects, and watch even more behind-the-scenes interviews where he creates his amazing creature sounds. You should also check out his voiceover advice blog at www.iwanttobeavoiceactor.com. Until next time, I wish you all the best in your voice acting endeavors. Take care. You've been listening to the Voice Acting Mastery Podcast with Crispin Freeman. To get your free report revealing the five most common mistakes to avoid in voice acting, point your web browser to www.freevoiceactinggift.com. Thanks for listening.